So there's really two things, and there's really only two things. And these are probably the most important financial lessons we have. And the first one is kind of the iron wire on which all the other financial planning topics are hung. And that is, you've got to spend less than you make. Okay, that's it. If you can do that one thing, then what you do with the excess becomes basically a decision tree. You know, first you build your emergency fund, then you max out your 401k. And if you have something over that, then you start saving a little bit more on the side and investing in a taxable account. It is really that simple. And then the second thing is what you do with what's in the 401k and what you do with that's in the portfolio outside the 401k. And that is you have to become an owner. everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. I've got a book coming out in January and there's a chapter in there all about money. There are some key themes in there that I've learned from friends like budget and pay yourself first. And more importantly, that debt is the single biggest thing that can hold you back personally and professionally. The chapter ends with a vignette of my dad and his relationship with money, but more importantly, how it informed my worldview of wealth and work. Money is so messy. That's why I have an expert on today's show to help us sort through the basic things that we need to do to live simply and live with a little bit of joy while managing our wealth. Jonathan DeYo is a best-selling author, speaker, and founder and CEO of Mindful Money, but he's really a financial literacy fanatic. Jonathan is both a money manager and a Buddhist scholar, and his book, Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Realizing Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend, has really made an impact on me, and I know it will make an impact on you. Maybe you have a great relationship with your cash, or maybe you're like me and you like to spend more than you earn. Whatever the case, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so sit tight and enjoy this discussion with Jonathan Dio. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lori. Good to be here. Sure, my pleasure. Listen, before we get started talking about your big ideas and your awesome book, why don't you take two minutes and tell us your backstory of how you got here, your origin story? I'll try to be efficient. Two minutes. Okay. When I was little, when I was a kid, I loved business and money and investing and finance. And I read the business pages and books about businesses. And I sent away for books about you know how to get small grants to start small businesses. And, and so I spent a lot of time with this concept, reading value line research. And this is 9, 10, you know, from 9 to 10 all the way through high school. And because of all that reading, when I went away to college to study business finance, I ended up getting really bored with it and very quickly switched into philosophy and religious studies, which I actually loved. I loved the why questions and I loved writing and ended up coming to California specifically to study comparative religion at the Graduate Theological Union. My intention was to get a PhD, become an academic, you know, teach and translate. I ended up not being quite as good at languages as one needed to be. And some of my peers could read Tibetan and Hindi and Chinese and Sanskrit, and they, they knew it all. So I knew that this wasn't going to be a path that I could probably pursue. And at some point, I decided I wasn't going to get the PhD. And my wife at the time thought it was her turn to go to school. And I thought that was fair. So I had to get a job and a philosophy degree and an unfinished master's in Buddhist studies doesn't open a lot of doors. Uh, <laughs> no. I went back to business and investing. I became a broker at Dean Witter and spent six years with with seven different Wall Street firms before I decided it wasn't any particular firm that was a problem. It was the whole lot of them. And in 2002, I decided to leave and start my own firm. And you know that was four or five years before the 2007 to 2009 recession. In that time frame, 2007, 2009, I had lots of conversations with clients. And one of my clients told me, you know, Jonathan, you've got to write a book. 
And so that's the origin of Mindful Money, the book. About a month ago, we actually rebranded the entire firm. You know, so now we do financial education, we do retirement plan services, and all of our wealth management comes from this concept of mindful money. Mm. You know, I think what's so interesting to me, first of all, you can't read languages, but you can read spreadsheets. I think numbers are a language in and of themselves. So that's an interesting skill set that you have, but also money and religion share so many common features. Like there are so many similarities between the two, especially the way people relate to and project upon religion and money. So I wonder, do you see any similarities between the two? That is such a great question. And I do. And it's really, you know, there's there's that famous quip, money's not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And I think that shows the similarity. We actually do often in culture, in our culture specifically, we see a lot of people who just put money at the forefront of everything and everything is financialized and how much money you make values you as a person. And we begin to believe that, that that's how we value ourselves. And it's, I definitely think it can be a form of religion for sure. Hmm. Interesting. Not with a bad ending. I mean, it's not a good form of religion. No, no, that's a really important point because I mean, like anything, if we're not focused on ourselves and we're focused on an object to define ourselves, it becomes pretty toxic. And I think many people listening, if they don't have a weird, quirky relationship with money, they know somebody who does. Like this is a very common thing in our society, a common problem. But I don't even want to use the word problem because when something is so common, is it a problem or is it just the way we're built? Well, I don't think we're built this way because if you go to different cultures, it's different. I think we've we've been acculturated to money this way. I think we've largely chosen this as a path. And I've listened to some of your prior episodes and I just love some of the conversations you have about the structures and the things we need to change, starting a little bit at the top with the politics and things. And, I, and I'm, I'm right on board with most of the things you're talking about. So we have a big chance right here in November to make some change. I don't disagree at all. And thank you for those kind words. What I'm so fascinated by is, well, like a million things, we do become acculturated to a way of living with money, spending money, relating to money. Money, and it also gets passed down like in our DNA and part of our family stories. I mean, my family is full of people who are terrible with money. And thank God I married someone who puts like some standards and breaks on my life and has really modeled good behaviors. Otherwise, I don't even know where I would be, right? So this is shameful and weird. And there you go. There's money for me. I can't believe I'm the only person who talks about money like that in your life. No, I mean, the big challenge is there's no formal education around money. We're basically flying by the seat of our pants. And whenever it comes to personal finances, and some people may choose to read some blogs or, you know, take that one hour session with your company's 401k onboarding process. And generally, unless you seek it out, there's no education at all. And that's also maybe that's cultural. I don't know why we don't. We financialize everything. We financialize the idea of our success. The entire middle section of my book is trying to remember what it is that creates true wealth. You know, all the things that death can't take away, all the things that money can't buy, right? Things like your health, learning new things, maintaining close relationships, pursuing meaningful work, staying accountable to your own dreams. One of the important implications of financial planning is you actually think about what matters to you. Your definition of success should involve things that make you content and happy. And without that, without spending the time and thinking about it, you end up being measured and measuring yourself based on what everyone else measures with, which is often money. 
Really well said. You know, I think there are probably a lot of different ways readers come to your book. They may be readers who are new to the idea of financial planning and just are looking for some good old fashioned advice. Or you may have people who are coming to you in a crisis, (laughs) you know, and they're like, oh my God, things are messed up and I need some help. Talk to me a little bit about the book. Who's the book for? And what are some of the important lessons in there for everybody? The book was actually written specifically for people that would never be my clients. I mean, I, I have this in my industry we always move up market. All of my peers, I'm in multiple study groups, they're always trying to find bigger clients and make more money. And that's one of the problems I had with the Wall Street firms to begin with. I've always tried to struggle to find a way to serve people that aren't going to find great advice, that they're going to go to the bank and the bank is going to actually try to sell them a product, usually an annuity or something that's going to pay the banker you know, a big commission or something like that. And so I've always thought, hey, I should find a way to help people like my parents who wouldn't qualify for a normal wealth management office. And so we've done a lot for that. And what I figured out was at the end of every chapter in the book, there's an exercise. And if you go through all the exercises at the end of all the chapters in the book, at the end of the book, you actually have a rudimentary, simple financial plan, including things like how do you pay off your debt? How much do I need to save for my kid's education? What should I be putting away for retirement? And I wrote the book because I knew there's a lot of people that don't have access to really good quality planning information. And I really think that our success isn't dependent upon money brilliance. It's not trading secrets. It's not which investments can outperform which other investment. That's information is not available to anybody. That's impossible to know. What your success is based on is education, understanding how money works, and then understanding how money works in your life. What is your financial plan? What are the things you need to do? So we wrote the book to reach a much broader audience that would never probably end up having a financial advisor that they can work with directly on these things. Yeah, that really speaks to me. You know, there was a point in my life very early in my career in human resources where I was at a dinner with a bunch of executives and I had been drinking and I started talking about my life and money. And, you know, I was maybe making $65,000 a year and had $1,000 a month in student loan payments and $1,000 in rent. And, you know, I was driving a used car that was paid for, but I still had to pay for insurance. And all of my expenses were just about sucking out everything. And so I said this to an executive and he leans into me and said, you just need to learn how to budget. And I almost kicked him in the throat. (laughs) I was so mad, right? Because I thought the nerve of this man. And yet years later, There's some truth in that. Even the little bit of pot of money I had over left over at the end of the month could have been allocated in a different way to really set me up for success in my early to mid 20s. So can you talk to me about the tension with that? Because you're right, there are so many societal problems where the bucket of money left over, even when people make good choices, is very, very tiny. So what do you tell those people who are really struggling to do the best with what they can? I did a TED Talk for a group of high school students. I think that the answer to this question is very similar to what comes out of that kind of a conversation. How do you teach a high school kid about money? Because they know their allowance. They may have worked a little bit. They don't know what it's like to live a life, but they know limitation. They know that they can't buy and do anything anything they want, right? So there's really two things. And there's really only two things. And these are probably the most important financial lessons we have. And the first one is kind of the iron wire on which all the other financial planning topics are hung. And that is you've got to spend less than you make. Okay, that's it. If you can do that one thing, then what you do with the excess becomes basically a decision tree. You know, first you build your emergency fund, then you max out your 401k. And if you have something over that, then you start saving a little bit more on the side and investing in a taxable account. It is really that simple. And then the second thing is what you do with what's in the 401k and what you do with that's in the portfolio outside the 401k. And that is you have to become an owner. 
Now, whether that's, you know, you're taking your money and you're investing in your own enterprise or you're investing in other enterprises, that is where getting ahead comes from. You know, the productivity and innovation of the human race is incredible. And the way you get ahead is you build assets. That means ownership. That doesn't mean lendership. That doesn't mean put it in the bank. You have to have those things too. That's where it all starts. But you have to get over that hump and realize that you have to own equity in business, whether it's your business or somebody else's business, whether it's a private business or a publicly traded business, you have to become an owner. And I think that that is the one lesson that I wish more people would hear. And I think wealth is having kind of a tough moment in our society right now. I think we have to find a way to share the wealth that exists. We also have to find a way to motivate people that don't have it to engage in that market and to own because that is how they will get ahead. If it's $5 a month, you know, there's apps for that. If it's $10 a month, there's apps for that. And then it's really easy. And you know this working you know, in HR, you know that if you, if you save just 1%, eh, you don't even notice it. And next month, maybe you've raised it to 2% and you won't even know the difference. You won't know the difference. And so that's key is spend less than you make and then own with what you save. Well, you know, I'm struck by two things. Number one, it's really hard not to spend money in America, right? I mean, that is just the stupidest thing to come out of my mouth. And yet, boy, I can feel that as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old, and as a 45-year-old woman, right? You walk out of the house, it costs you five bucks just across the street. I mean, it's terrible. But beyond that, I'm struck by this idea of ownership because so many people and this may be something you can really shed some light on, so many people don't even feel ownership of their own lives, ownership of their own schedule, ownership of their own emotions, ownership of relationships. And then to tell them, guess what? You need to be an owner in your finances. That's like speaking a language that you don't speak, right? It's like telling them to go translate Tibetan. They would have no idea. So how do you get that message out there and accept it? And how do you educate people on that? I don't know that I can answer that. One of the things that I notice is, is a lot of our conversations go to this, you know, big policy driven, how do we fix the entire world? I've kind of given up on the ability to fix the entire world on this topic. I fix it one person at a time. And I do the TED Talk for the kids. I do the work in my own community. We create courses, we create conversations, and we just always talk about the benefits of doing it. I mean, I, I'm human. Like, I know, I understand. And there's lots of parts of my life that I don't feel like I own, especially today. Like, we're in a pandemic. So if we're in a pandemic, there's so many things we just don't have choices about. We don't own these things. However, if you look forward five, 10 years, hopefully, you know, eight months, but five or 10 years from now, there's a lot of things that come home to roost. So whether we own it or not, whether we take the responsibility of that ownership or not, we get to experience the results. The results are on us. We may as well, knowing the results are on us, regardless of the decision we make, the results are going to be on us. We can make good decisions or bad decisions. The results are going to be on us. So let's educate ourselves and let's make the best decision we can. And then let's always get better. Let's always keep working to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, make one bit better decision this time, one bit better decision next time. And you know, we're going to fall on our faces sometimes, recognize that. And then we stand back up, we wipe ourselves off and we keep going forward. That's all we can really do. I don't know how to solve the massive problem. I, you know, one person at a time. I do this. I'm a guest on podcasts. You have an audience. Hopefully this reaches that audience. Hey, everybody. Chances are you've spent the past few months cooped up with your family, buried under a relentless news cycle and with work that never seems to switch off. Millions of us worldwide are overworked, exhausted and trying our hardest, yet not getting the recognition we deserve. It's time for a fix. That's why I wrote my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. It's an essential guide for how to snap out of autopilot and become your own best advocate with candid and new stories and easy to adopt steps. 
I wrote this book for you. I believe in you. And I would be honored if you would pre-order it today. Head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudeman.com forward slash books and pre-order your copy today. I'm so moved by your individual approach to talking about money because I think you're right. That's how we change the world, you know, one person at a time. And I know when I'm writing, whether it's a book or a blog post or a tweet, I always try to keep somebody in mind. Like I know my reader. I know that one person I want to help. I want to be of service to. Who are you trying to help? I mean, besides your parents, can you talk a little bit about who you want to reach with this book? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to reach people that are 20, 22, coming out of college. Maybe if we could, we could reach some people that are, you know, 17, 18 going into college. Cause I don't know if you remember the, your first day of college. I remember going to the dorm room. There was a little box on the shelf there and the box had, you know, had a Snickers bar in it and had, uh, you know, five credit card applications, right? For the 17, 18 year old kid, we're like, Hey, this is, you know, and I think that's where it starts. You know, now college students are graduating with four or $5,000 in credit card debt. That's ridiculous. That's a problem, but it's a problem that we've created and the colleges have helped create it, right? As a culture, we've helped create it. Parents, we give our kids everything. That helps create it. So I'm hoping I can reach the younger, the next generation. My kids, I'd love it if my son would read it. He's not going to read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the reality. <laughs> he has me to push him, but he's not going to read the book. There's like a second group. The first group is young folks that are starting off and they don't have the education and they need the support and they need to read it. I don't know how many of them will read it. The second group is people that are recovering, their financial recovery. They've just gotten a divorce. They've just gotten out from underneath medical bills and they have to have a path out to something. I think this is a great thing for somebody that is starting out, needs to figure out what the next step is and just get a plan in place. Because there's a lot of people that need planning, that want planning, that don't have access to it. Well, I think about your book and some of the big lessons in the book. And we talked about how it's structured and how a reader would emerge with a plan of some sort if they do the work and do the exercises. Can you tell us maybe one or two other big ideas that you want people to know that are communicated in the book? Sure. I mean, the book is actually split into three different sections. There's a big idea in each section, right? So the first section of the book is really about financial illusions. We swim in a soup of financial commentary. And the soup of financial commentary is about 98% crap. The vast majority of the stuff we read about is worthless. It doesn't... Wait, wait. Are you telling me Jim Cramer is not right on the money about everything? I mean, that guy looks so credible to me. Come on. Well, yeah. Jim Cramer's like one, he's like one really good example. <laughs> he's really the only example. Like, I mean, there are plenty of other talking heads on CNBC and I even stumbled upon like an Ameritrade YouTube TV channel where just schmoes from all over the world are talking about money. How is this? There's entertainment everywhere around the world of money. That's fascinating to me. So it's probably, it's even worse than that. I don't know. I don't remember the name of the person, but CNBC coming out of 2001, 2002, CNBC hired the person that used to direct or, or produce the Maury Povich show to run financial media. So what you said is absolutely true. It is just entertainment. It is designed as entertainment. It's designed just like everything in social media and the internet is designed to grab your eyes and keep them there. Which scares me because we have Larry Kudlow, who's now advising the president. And that guy has never been right about anything. The other day when he was on TV talking about Trump's health said he's always been wrong about recoveries. <laughs> so, I mean, it is just a weird industry. All right. So we're swimming in a sea of just like a mess, right? It's just a toxic, soupy mess. So you want to break through that. Yeah. And I want to give people, and this is the subtitle of the book, simple practices for reaching financial goals. 
the goal is, and I'm not the only one, there's probably two dozen books that have been written in the last five years that are basically bringing attention to the simple practices. There's a blog called The Evidence-Based Investor that talks about what is the really the evidence. It's really, really simple stuff. It's not complex. There's Vanguard out there that's helping lots and lots and lots of people because they do it the simple right way. And the biggest part, the biggest illusion out there is that there's some kind of value in the conversation around the current price of Tesla or Apple. That's what all the talk is, is Tesla was up, you know, 300% this year, you know, this was down or that crashed or this went up. And it's, it just creates this emotional thing around it where the best thing you can do is just dollar cost average, just like the 401ks, just put money in 401k every single month, put in the balance thing, let it go, leave it alone. Don't think about it and put more in next month, next paper, next month, next paper, and just keep doing that for your whole life. You'll get there. That is the fundamental. Don't get scared. Don't panic. Don't get excited. Just do that. You don't need financial media for that. You don't at all. You know, there's that first section is all these illusions. The second section of the book, this is where I think that we as an industry have failed the public largely. We've started off with this planning process, asking people, okay, how old are your kids? Okay, college. When would you like to retire? We've started off just sort of plugging in these goals without trying to figure out what matters to the individual first. And there's an enormous amount of religious, philosophical, psychological work that's been done on what makes life meaningful. And that's the middle section of the book. I call it eight pillars. It could be nine, there could be 12, there could be seven. I could have overlaps. I'm not getting too sucked in by that. But things like relationships, you know, accountability to your own goal sets, generosity, meaningful work, these are things that drive us, that make us happy. And if we build our financial plan on the foundation of the stuff that we know leads to our personal version of happiness, we'll end up living more fulfilled filled lives and being happier at the end of them and throughout the whole path. So the middle section of the book, we define those eight pillars, the eight things that are critical to our happiness. And, you know, maybe they'll apply all to you. I mean, that's fine. You can forget one of them. That's the middle part. Then the last part of the book is all about the simple practices. Well, if somebody were to pick up the book, do you recommend that they read it straight through? Can they dip in? Like, how would you like them to read it? It's interesting because I would love it if they would do the exercises at the end of the book. However, I've talked to many people that have read the book and they just, they just start reading it. They don't get their notebook. They don't do the work at the end. You know, they don't do the work part. And so they go, Hey, great book, Jonathan. I'm like, Hey, did you do the exercises? No. Ugh. And it kind of, you know, it lets me down every single time. Please buy the book and, you know, please read it, but do the exercises. That's the point. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel called out. I read the book on vacation. I flipped through it and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do these exercises. They're for someone else, right? No, but they are for me. They're for, I think, anybody who wants to explore their relationship with money. So that's why I was so excited to get you on the podcast. I wonder if there's another book that you're working on or what your next steps are in your writing career, because it's not like this book is just the end of your work. I mean, you said you do webinars, you speak on this topic. What are you passionate about? How does this keep going forward for you? Thank you for that question. Starting about five months ago, I, because no one is doing the exercises, <laughs> I've now taken the exercises and I'm creating a course and I'm going to offer that course along with, so it'll be exercises out of, you know, all those exercises put into one course. And I've built in the last four months, a 16 module soup to nuts financial education course where people can take all 16 modules. They can take, Hey, early career. There's these six that are applied for you. Your late career. Here's these eight that are good for you. Your high school student. Here's these three that you want to focus on. So the idea is to put all of this out there and start with education. I mean, I'm all about education and planning. So now we have courses that do education and a course that does planning. I do have a podcast that's starting. We did our first interview this last week. It's called mindful wealth. So in addition to the nitty gritty, you know, 
the boots on the ground, the educating people, the working one-on-one with clients, I have this deep interest, you know, the philosophical background maybe in this cultural moment and wealth. And so I'm partnering up with somebody who wrote the book, Mindful Landlord. She's a Canadian and we're doing a podcast called Mindful Wealth. I'm just really excited to have deep conversations about where wealth and success and money and our definitions of meaning in life, where those things overlap and the current cultural environment around wealth. Well, I like that you're dipping your toe in the infotainment waters. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing you on CNBC is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> well, I am excited for all of your success. The book is incredibly helpful. And if readers and listeners want to go find it and learn more about your platform and all the good stuff that you offer, where can they go? The best place is mindful.money. That's not mindfulmoney.com. It's mindful.money. I can't even imagine how much money mindfulmoney.com would cost. <laughs> I think you made a good choice on that URL. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes along with the link to the book and all your good stuff. And it was a real joy just to have this conversation with you and give you just a glimpse into my jacked up history with money. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for being so open, Lori. It's been fun. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan Dio. Now, for more information on this episode, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-135. And as always, I'm super honored that you would choose to listen to this podcast. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.